This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Patrick Sheehan, one of your hosts for the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Moira Weigel and Ben Tarniff about their new book, Voices from the Valley, out in 2020 from Logic and FSG Originals. In brief, the book is a series of interviews with the people, the workers that make up the tech industry. Um, But it's not a hagiography of industry leaders that we're so used to. It's more of a Studs Terkel uh, kind of book. Uh, It opens up conversations with seven anonymous tech workers. We've got founders and data scientists, PR people, um, contracted cooks, uh, masseuses. And and best of all, it lets these people speak for themselves. You know, it uses expert sort of questions and framings to to bring out important themes. But 90% of the book is workers in the tech industry talking about their work. Uh, It's a fascinating read. Moira Weigel is a fellow at the Data and Society Research Institute and incoming assistant professor of media technologies at Northeastern University. She's also a former junior fellow at Harvard and received her PhD at Yale in 2017. Ben Tarniff is a tech worker, a writer, and a co-founder of Logic Magazine, along with Moira. Moira and Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Okay, let's start here. Uh, the tech industry is supposed to be, like at its core, about technical work. You know, lay people think of software developers, right? But obviously, and as you show in this book, there's so much more to the industry than the software developers staring at code, right? There's cooks and masseuses, and there's technical writers that have to teach people how to use the products. There's PR people that make the products digestible. Um, And particularly in the interview with the technical writer, we hear a lot about this distinction, distinctions being drawn between technical workers and non-technical work with a clear hierarchy there, Right. Uh, you know, the technical is kind of the more masculine, uh, it's got a masculine valence, the non-technical is framed as sort of feminine. Um, and these are distinctions that have big consequences for authority and earnings in the firm. Uh, what is what is this distinction between technical and non-technical work? What is it doing in the industry? You know, what kind of practices are based on it and who's benefiting or losing in that? Well, technical is a core concept for how the industry structures its class and occupational divisions. Roughly speaking, the more technical a job is perceived to be, the more prestigious and better paid it is. But what is technical is not a given. It's often treated that way within the industry as if that's self-evident. But in fact, what's technical and what's not technical or less technical are very contested categories and categories that have shifted over time. So to give one example, certain kinds of software engineering, for instance, those that are front-end 
uh, treat the front end uh, of of software um, are typically thought to be less technical than forms of software engineering that treat the back end kind of more data intensive portion of the, of the software stack. And this is again a really interesting thing to dig into because say one of the reasons for this, which is something that's explored by a wonderful writer named Miriam Posner in the first issue of Logic, is the fact that women have begun to occupy these front-end coding roles uh, more numerously in recent years. So that the question of what is technical and what's not technical often falls along gendered and also racialized lines that as women and people of color occupy certain roles, those roles are often perceived over time to be less technical and then less compensated. So that's just one example, but the technical is a very important concept in terms of who gets the benefits of the industry. Right. And at some point, I'm forgetting which interview it's in. Someone explicitly says, maybe the founder that yeah, your compensation is essentially based on the degree how how technical you are seen. Absolutely, is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's uh, one of our conversations with the technical writer. You know, this individual says, "Look, I I'm actually one of the few people in the organization with the word technical in my title, and yet she's dealing with a lot of uh, difficulty." And her job because people perceive her to be less technical and then less deserving of, of a certain kind of respect or prestige or compensation. So I think, you know, when we think of how does the tech industry distribute its prestige, distribute its its value, its rewards, technical and who is perceived to be inside and outside of that, which itself has a lot to do with issues of, of gender and race, is absolutely central to that question. Another sort of symbolic distinction that comes up in the in the interviews a few times is is that of age. It comes up in multiple different interviews. And as I think a lot of casual observers will know, the tech industry is sort of aggressively young. You know, its employees are very young. There's a lot of reporting of sort of brutal ageism in the industry, pushing out older workers. Um, and, and in the interview, actually, with the founder, he says at some point in passing, uh, I have here, quote, I don't know where all the old programmers are. <laughs> It must go somewhere. It's kind of worrisome. Um, and, you know, there's there's a story, at least, uh, that the industry makes that, you know, the industry is moving so fast. Everything's innovating and turning over. Old things, you know, just rot. Old skills fall out. Human capital depreciates quickly. But I have a sense that there's something more going on there. This is a big question. But, like, why is the tech industry so young? Or at least what is this kind of idea doing for the industry? It's a great question, and I think that there are probably a number of different factors that influence it. You know, there is this legacy of the Bay Area counterculture, a sort of don't trust anyone over 30 counterculture that certainly makes itself felt symbolically, if not substantively, anymore in various parts of of the tech industry. And of course, uh, the scholar Fred Turner at Stanford has written about that. Uh, in his book, Counterculture to Cyberculture. But I think from a labor perspective, too, you know, young people can work in certain ways that older people could not. You know, they both can work longer hours at a startup. If you think of the kind of grind involved in being in an early stage startup um, or even on a campus, and I think it is significant that they're called campuses and sort of replicate a college atmosphere of one of the big 
big companies, uh, young people can kind of give their life to the firm, live, eat, breathe, date the firm um, in, in a certain way that older people can't. And at least in the case of startup folks, where often you're working for, you know, a decent but not spectacular salary, but mostly working for equity in the hopes that uh, that the startup will take off. Uh, at least that's the hope that's justifying the intensity of your, of your late night grind work. Um, that kind of risk is easier to take on, you know, before you have kids and a mortgage. So I think there are these, um, you know, they're sort of cultural, ideological reasons, this belief that, you know, young people understand technology intuitively, young people have the kind of disruptive vision um, necessary to be brought to this, this industry that understands itself as disruptive. But I can't help but, uh, but see part of the ageism as being about who's whose labor is most conveniently or easily uh, exploited uh, by certain kinds of tech work. What do you think, Ben? Does that, does that sound fair to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the reasons that's sometimes given for the ageism of the industry is also the fact that the paradigm in software engineering tends to turn over every 10 years or so. And it's, it's just very difficult to learn a completely new technology stack at a certain age. People don't have time for it. They don't have the patience. They don't have the energy. So there's a lot of self-education that one has to do in these firms as a technical worker in order to stay current. It's actually a kind of focus and preoccupation and a an ang- source of anxiety for a lot of folks uh, in the industry. And I think that is also a contributing factor as, as people you know, fall behind with whatever the, the kind of trendy new technology is. And, and do you have, either of you have a sense of where the old programmers do go? <laughs> I mean, do they leave the industry? Do they keep doing work, you know, maybe not in a tech first firm or? Management, no? Where do they go, Ben? <laughs> well, management is is one place that some of them go. Um, but I think, you know, tech is also a very big category. And I think, you know, we, we sometimes talk about tech as a kind of shorthand for the five biggest tech companies. And, you know, information technology is, is of course, much broader than that. And, and folks with these skills actually can work across a variety of sectors. Finance is an obvious one, but, you know, manufacturing, retail, and so on. So, I would say the the age character of these top firms tends to skew younger, but if you kind of push out into the broader tech ecosystem, and particularly if you push out into kind of broader geography outside of the Bay Area and a couple other big tech hubs like New York City, I, I think you actually start to find a lot more differentiation in terms of age. And that's a point I thought about um, jumping in and making, but didn't in response to your question about the technical, Patrick. I mean, we wrote in the introduction that tech, you know, tech is not just an industry. Tech is increasingly a layer of every of every industry, you know, um, and and it'd be hard pressed to think we'd be hard pressed, I think, to think of any industry that has no sort of digital technological intermediation. Um, So, yeah, I think perhaps, as Ben said, broadening the purview of what we think about as tech might uh, help us understand better where the old programmers go as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite interviews in the book, I think is the last one with a woman that you call the storyteller, who's, you know, a sort of PR person, you know, whose job it seems is to sort of wrap 
sometimes scary or dangerous new products in nice narrative bows, you know, making it palatable for the market, sometimes doing like defensive work when, when these big firms are, are taking heat publicly. Um, to an outsider, sort of like myself, there's something that feels so, and I'm struggling for words with this, kind of like feathery about the tech industry. It feels like there's there's so much floating on like stories, promises, sort of imagined futures, imagined revenue streams. And this is not going to come to a nice uh, question, but kind of what is up with that? Is there something unique about tech? Does it have to do with with the relationship to finance um, that that makes narratives feel like sort of more uh, forward or more central to the to the thing? And please take take issue with the, with that characterization too. No, I think it's a very perceptive characterization, Patrick. I think you know. The tech industry exercised power at a number of different levels, but I think one of the most critical levels at which it exercises power is at the level of language and metaphor. It really defines the discursive and symbolic terrain on which the conversation about technology operates. You know, We use terms that have been handed to us by these companies to describe how they operate, a term like platform, for instance, terms that not coincidentally, do a lot of work for those companies, that they they mystify, obfuscate the operations of how these firms work, and they articulate them in ways that are particularly convenient to them when it comes to managing relationships with regulators or policymakers uh, and so on. Part of the hope with this book was to start to try to demystify these companies, to try to peel back some of the layers of obfuscation and mystification and see how they work. As we describe in the introduction to the book, the most important thing to recognize here is that platforms are made of people, that there are all of these human beings at the center of these firms performing all sorts of different types of labor. And in some cases, there is some very interesting technology involved, but it's not magic. You know, it's the, the, this kind of Wizard of Oz quality that these executives of these firms are very keen to project because it does a lot of work for them with their various constituencies is, in fact, a, a fantasy, right? It's a fantasy that, that serves interests uh, in a very kind of effective way. But if we're going to ever assert a degree of democratic control over these firms and these infrastructures, it's important that we bring a degree of clarity to what they're actually doing and how they actually operate. I do think there is something else in what you say, Patrick, and I'm I'm puzzling a bit about how exactly to put it, but there is something about um, the logics of both venture capital and machine learning, I think, um, that are certain kinds of yeah, let's just say machine learning or data-driven technologies that that privileges this kind of speculative, proleptic future mode. Um, something not just, I mean, I think, think of a company like Amazon too, and I don't have the exact dates ready to mind, but how long Amazon is losing money while gaining market share and sort of this, this dream of scale, right? That what these technologies are going to make possible is a certain kind of global scale um, that, it, that justifies venture capital investment, I think does have this 
I've never thought of it as feathery, but this sort of airy, airy quality to it. And you think, you know, in a very basic way, the model of, of venture capital is that investors expect that the vast majority of, of things they invest in will fail, but that the ones that succeed will succeed at this sort of fantastical scale. Um, and, and what I mean with machine learning, I guess, and with, with certain segments of the attention economy with the hype around machine learning in the past 10 years is I think there's just this, you know, there's this pitch that sort of these massive amounts of data and massive amounts of data exhaust that different firms have found ways uh, to capture will be made valuable, you know, will be a source of sort of emergent insights and value uh, at some future point. And so I, I think that both the way VC has worked and the sort of big data hype era of the past decade also contribute uh, to this quality of, of speculation. There's a line, um, it was in a logic issue a while ago, I can't remember where this came from, but where uh, one of our writers says, you know, a taxi company that that struggles and fails is like a bad idea, but, you know, an app for for hailing taxi drivers is actually that's losing billions of dollars a year as, as Uber was for a long time um, is, you know, a visionary world changing idea just hasn't hit the moment yet. Um, and I think there is this, this credence, this sort of, yeah, this, I keep wanting to say proleptic or sort of like future oriented speculative, one might say BS or hype <laughs> uh, quality that I do think um the logic of both VC and, and so-called big data do contribute to as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Um, so much of the book is about, uh, you know, in so many ways, uncovering the politics of the, of the industry, you know, not just the kind of external politics we see in, you know, New York Times uh, headlines, but also the kind of power dynamics internal to the industry. Um, and there's this, you know, there's this sort of well-trodden story about the tech industry is kind of based on this uh, California ideology is the term, you know, this kind of libertarian liberalism as seen through an engineer's eyes. Uh, but in the book, uh, in this book and in both of your many publications, you find very different sort of ideological orientations and political um, practices going on when you actually look at the workers, not just the owners and the VCs. Um, and in the book in particular, you interview a subcontractor who's a cook at one of these tech companies who's helped organize a union among the subcontracted staff, importantly, not right with the tech employer, but with the, with the employer of the subcontracting firm. Would you tell us um, a bit about that cook, the struggles going on and the struggles going on with regards to contract and subcontracted workers uh, in these firms? Yeah, absolutely. So these firms, in addition to employing software engineers, product designers, technical writers, product managers, and others who work in a white collar capacity, these firms, particularly on these campuses in Silicon Valley, also employ thousands of subcontracted service workers 
folks like janitors, security guards, shuttle bus drivers, and cooks, whose work keeps the industry running, to keep people fed, to keep people safe, and so on. Now, these folks, despite working for some of the richest companies in the world, tend to earn fairly low wages and, of course, live in one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. So second jobs are common. You know, mega commutes of two hours each way are common. These are very difficult lives, again, despite working for a Google or a Facebook or an Apple. Now, partly in response to this punishing math of making ends meet as a security guard, say, for, for Facebook, a number of these individuals have unionized over the past decade or so. Uh, and there's actually been a, a kind of wave of successful unionization campaigns that started kind of in the early mid 2010s. And one of the individuals we speak to for the book, who is a cook at one of these big firms, participates in one of these union campaigns and brings us inside the kind of mechanics of it, how it gets started, you know, how how they win, and what effect that has on the workplace. And would you help connect something for me too? Most of the sort of um, activism, sort of big picture activism I, I tend to see from the tech industry is the stuff that's come up around salaried workers um, at places like Google in the last several years. And this seems like, seems like a different kind of activism, right? There was the things I remember are, you know, leadership joining the workers to protest Trump travel bans. There was a walkout around sexual uh, handling of sexual misconduct. Then the like, Google employees protesting defense department contracts, uh, work in China. And I guess I, I'm trying to figure out how that kind of activism links up with the sort of union-based bread and butter kinds of struggles that you're telling us about here. Are these like similar impulses? Or are they different? Um, you know, one feels, yeah, closer to kind of traditional union organizing work and the other maybe closer to sort of activism, except, except uh, this, the government you're protesting is your employer because they're so powerful, perhaps. I guess I'm wondering where and how those two, those two trends intersect. Yeah, absolutely. So, so these are deeply related and connected phenomena, and I think it's really important to to emphasize their their deep connection. This is maybe too simplistic uh, a way to put it, but broadly speaking, the wave of mobilization within the white collar layers of the tech industry begins as as a as a kind of processing of the Trump election of 2016. That in the aftermath of that shocking result. There are a lot of folks, white collar workers in the industry, who are beginning to have more conversations among themselves about what are the technologies that they're building, who are they building them for, to what ends are these technologies being put. There's particularly a lot of concern in the immediate term after Trump's election that tech workers will be pressed into service of building technologies for the promised Muslim registry, which is a centerpiece of his 2016 campaign, or for uh, various uh, anti-immigrant programs that, that he had also promised. Now, what happens with this wave of politicization and radicalization that is occurring among white-collar tech workers in the aftermath of Trump's election is that 
they start linking up with an already existing and already ongoing phenomenon of unionizing service workers. So as I mentioned, service workers were already starting to get unionized, starting to get organized uh, on Silicon Valley campuses. And this wave of newly politicized white collar tech workers as part of figuring out how they're going to remake their industry, start to do solidarity work with these subcontracted service workers. So they, they, in many cases, lend really critical support to these unionization campaigns and you know, play, play an important role in their success. Now, through that encounter between this white-collar layer and the subcontracted service layer, these white-collar folks are actually learning a lot from that encounter. They're learning about the mechanics of collective action, how do you map power in a workplace? How do you speak to your coworkers? How do you organize? And they're also learning something which is a bit more abstract, but in my opinion, even more essential, which is that they're learning to think of themselves as workers. They're seeing the structure of their workplace differently, that rather than being members of a family or thinking of themselves as creatives or entrepreneurs, they're thinking of themselves in more labor and class terms as workers. And as workers, they see that they have power by coming together with other workers and exercising leverage at the point of production. So briefly, I think that's how these phenomena are connected, that the a lot of the inspiration for the types of collective action campaigns that you mentioned, like the Google walkout or the successful cancellation of Project Maven, the Pentagon contract, or a number of other campaigns I think the origin point there is actually coming up from the model of these subcontracted service workers fighting and winning their unions. I think the only other thing I'd like to to jump in and add, and it's something Ben and I have often talked about, uh, is is that while there certainly are differences between the cook uh, organizing to win higher wages and the Google engineer becoming involved in a campaign to cancel Project Maven, at stake in both issues, uh, and this came up a lot in the protests right after the Trump election, I remember, is this question of control over one's work. Um, and and I think that a lot of white collar, highly salaried tech employees had been conditioned or told or inclined to think of themselves uh, in the past as in that Californian ideology way as sort of, you know, entrepreneurs or creatives, knowledge workers, not workers, in the sense that the person who made their steak lunch or coffee was a worker. And I think that it's just quite striking that that at stake too for the engineers is this question of control over their work and not wanting to build software that's going to be used to you know, conduct drone strikes or something. And there's a moment in the interview with the cook where the cook talks about how their manager was more polite even as soon as the organizing started, you know, before before they even won their union. And I think I just always think of that moment and like to highlight it because it's not, I think we have a tendency in this country because organized labor has been so attacked to sort of diminish or denigrate its aims or think the only reason someone would really organize would be to get a dollar more per hour or whatever it is. But I do think that that in both cases, there is this common theme of 
wanting control over the conditions of one's work uh, and to be basically respected. And that's a thread that that connects these different kinds of actors and and is borne out in that that language of worker identity and class that Ben's talking about too. Mm-hmm. And would you tell us a little bit more about sort of the organizing structures that that can link these groups and, and uh, build a stronger movement? I mean, I, I, I believe in the chapter with the cook, we hear a bit about the Tech Workers Coalition. I'm wondering sort of the role that that is playing in, in building these struggles or the role that other, you know, if more traditional unions are, are involved um, in, in the sector, what, what are kind of the, yeah, what are the organizational frameworks through which these struggles are, are being built? Well, I think, you know, with the blue collar service worker folks, they have pursued, you know, formal unionization. So these are folks who have unionized with SEIU, the Teamsters, Unite Here. For the white collar folks, it's been a mix. There have been some successful unionization campaigns by both full-time and subcontracted white collar workers. Perhaps the best known is Kickstarter, which is a small shop, but successfully unionized uh, earlier this year after uh, fighting back against a, a management campaign to, to break the union. Uh, and I think we'll see that continue, particularly smaller shops will probably unionize more and more. And, and there's also been a lot more interest uh, by the big unions in organizing tech workers. So CWA, Communications Workers of America, now has an initiative called Code, which is devoted to trying to organize both game industry workers and tech workers. So there's certainly a lot more interest in in that possibility than, than there was a few years ago. But the reality is that for a lot of tech workers, you know, particularly at the big firms where most of the activity has taken place, you know, NLRB style unionization is uh, it's it's hard to contemplate, at least in the short term. You know, we have very restrictive and conservative labor law in this country. And of course, with the rise of the right and the collapse of the labor movement, we also uh, don't really have a government at any level that is uh, very favorable to to work to protecting workers' rights and to protecting their right to organize. So that's a long way of saying that the prospect of pursuing formal unionization at a, at a firm like Google, which is massive, uh, I think remains a little bit more distant, although there have been some early steps towards that in some of the European subsidiaries, which is you know an interesting uh, kind of, let's say, disadvantage from management's perspective of, of being a multinational that operates in these different jurisdictions. Sometimes the jurisdictions are more favorable to workers' rights than the United States, which is admittedly a very low bar. So at, at those places where formal unionization is not immediately practical, you know, more informal, um, more networked forms of organizing have prevailed. And I think these can be very effective as, we, as we've seen. You know, there have been some incredible triumphs uh, that have come out of those models. Um, but they also have certain weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And I think particularly in trying to withstand management retaliation and build continuity uh, over the medium to long term, that's, I think, where those organizational forms face a particular challenge. Mm-hmm. And what about um, 
the larger group of platform workers, right, that are employed um, even further on the fringes of the tech industry, the Uber drivers and, and otherwise. How do you see or how do you imagine um, them fitting into these struggles uh, with both the core salaried workers and the contracted workers within these campuses? Or, or what, what models do we can we imagine or work towards to to pull them into the into the struggle? Well, these folks have developed their own very impressive organizations. You know, Rideshare Drivers United, Gig Workers Collective. The past few years have seen a real surge of bottom-up militant organizing by Uber drivers, Instacart shoppers, and others. I think the the big question, which is the question you're asking, and I and I wish I had a better answer for you because I think things people are trying to figure this out, which is how do you connect the dots? How do you build these kind of deep, enduring alliances between, you know, the gig workers, people who are performing this platform mediated labor and, and organizing around it. And, you know, the white collar workers, the software engineers, who in many cases are building these apps at these firms, there've been very encouraging cases of, you know, individual workers. And in some cases, more than that, um, at a firm like Amazon, there's been some solidarity work from white collar corporate workers and the warehouse workers, uh, which has been very encouraging. But I think it it remains to be seen, how do we deepen those bonds and create something that really feels sectoral? You know, I mean, the kind of old model of industrial unionism is you organize everybody in the industry, you know, and I think that's a really critical model to keep in mind because tech worker organizing in particular, when we're talking about these white collar folks, the ones in particular who occupy more privileged spots in the industry, there's always going to be this risk of embracing a kind of conservative craft unionism model, which will be used to kind of further entrench the privileges enjoyed by those folks. And I think we need to be pushing always in a more solidaristic direction, which which is to embrace the broader industry and people of all occupational types and levels. One last thing I want to ask is, is the work that um, you all at Logic Magazine are doing in um, beginning what I understand to be a sort of tech worker school um, to sort of contribute to these uh, to these struggles. Would you tell me um, a bit about that first? Sort of what was the, how did the decision, how was the decision made to do that? I know Logic Magazine and you all write very, um, you know, important political work that is obviously contributing Uh, Did it feel like a big jump to get into organizing to some degree? Um, And then can you tell us a little bit about sort of the vision of of the school and what it'll do? I feel bad because I haven't been speaking, but I think Ben's been more involved with the the school. So Ben, do you want to take the lead on that? So this is really the initiative of our collaborator at Logic, Xiaowei Wang, who is the creative director also author of a wonderful new book in the, in the Logic Book series called Blockchain Chicken Farm. And Zhao Wei has been developing this idea for a little bit. And the hope is to bring a cohort of tech workers of all different kinds, software engineer, warehouse worker, gig worker, any kind of tech worker, to bring those folks together for a 12-week program that'll be conducted online where the emphasis is, is on building a collaborative learning environment. You know, it's really a co-learning model rather than a kind of top-down model. And over these 12 weeks, 
these individuals will have the opportunity to be exposed to a variety of very interesting guest lectures, read a variety of very interesting texts, undertake a variety of interesting experiments and and be working towards their own final project, which can take a, a variety of different forms. But broadly, I think, I don't want to speak for Zhao Wei, but as I understand Zhao Wei's vision here, the hope is to give tech workers the tools of the knowledge they need to remake the industry from below, you know, to kind of fill the gaps that they might have when it comes to learning about how to organize a workplace, say, kind of organizing tactics, or how to kind of think critically about technology, how to evaluate the social impacts of the products that folks are building. So we're really excited about it. We hope it's it's the beginning of uh, of, a, of a long, long project, and and we hope that that folks get something out of it. I think the thing, the only thing I'd add to that, um, to speak to your question, Patrick, of how it connects to logic as a whole and the writing we publish, uh, is that you know this is a new initiative. I'm so excited uh, that Joe and Ben and others have gotten it off the ground, but it has a lot of continuity. Uh, with work we've done in the past. I'm the member of the Logic team who would always joke that the only defensible reason to start a magazine is to throw parties, <laughs> which is a line I stand by and one that feels even more poignant to me during COVID. But I think you know a big part of the ambition of the magazine from the very beginning in, in 2016, when we first started working on it, uh, was to bring people together in space. And at the time we felt, you know, there was really good work being done by STS and sort of history of science and anthropology and certain types of scholars in academia. There were really important and impressive community activists and organizers doing work around technology. There were sort of more conventional journalists and writers um, sometimes writing about it, although we found relatively little of the writing we were hungering for uh, existing when we started uh, but then also, of course, people in the industry themselves. And we felt that there was really kind of a hole or a gap in terms of critical, thoughtful writing about technology that spoke to such people um, in, you know, about their lives and from a place of non-condescension. I think I'm an academic. I'm one of the only academics in the Logic family. But uh, I think we sometimes think, you know, we have to come in and teach or something. And I think actually people have a lot of knowledge about their everyday lives and the work they do. And uh, so so part of the ambition of Logic from the very beginning has been to, like, try to break down these silos and, and bring people together in space and throw parties, uh, sometimes, you know, sweaty and crowded and hot ones that I now dream of with, with great nostalgia. But, uh, but I think to that extent, the school, to me feels like a really direct extension and sort of expansion of that original ambition of the magazine uh, and also just closely tied to the ambition of our book uh, and the interviews we do in the magazine to try to draw on the lived expertise uh, of, of all kinds of people um, and, and improve the industry from below. I know I said that that was the last question, but I, I want to squeeze one more in, which is... Um, why you all are you're positing a, a certain sort of vision for change um, around tech? Why can't the tech industry save itself? Right, we've seen these waves of of uh, tech leaders, you know, looking very remorseful on TV on the, that new Netflix documentary, saying they had it all wrong. Uh, we just need to 
we got to tweak the tools to make them fit, you know, our best, the best part of our humanity, you know, and, and we're going to work on that. What's, what's wrong with that vision? I feel like that's pleasing to lots of people that see, you know, maybe Zuckerberg hang his head and say, I'll do better. Um, what's missing from that uh, vision? I guess I'm going to let, I want Ben to, to, you know, address this question or hear what he has to say about it too. But I think one thing that people have realized, many different people have realized since 2016 is that the tech industry is an industry. And I don't think we would expect, um, you know, there was so much ideology around the tech industry not being like other industries. And I think for a variety of reasons, particularly in the Obama era, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis, um, so many hopes were pinned on Silicon Valley. You know, we had Obama, the sort of supposedly post-racial internet grassroots president. We had these great social media companies that were bringing democracy to the Arab world, heavy scare quotes around all these different things I'm saying. Um, but I think that there was a certain sort of forgetting that the tech industry is an industry. And I don't think we would go to... Um, you know, BP or Shell or something and expect them to be the primary agents fixing, fixing uh, the energy, you know, whatever, fixing global warming or, or something. Uh, and it seems to me sort of counterintuitive um, to expect people who have been made billionaires by a particular situation to be, to be the primary agents driving change of that situation. Um, and so, yeah, I think our theory of change comes starts from below or starts with people affected starts from within to um, workers within the industry, because, because it just doesn't seem credible to me that anyone who didn't realize until 2017 that the interests of Facebook might not be the interests of humanity, or I guess Google, in, in the case of that documentary we will not name, um, that that those folks are, are going to be either um, insightful or knowledgeable enough or in the correct sort of subject position to, to drive change. What do you think, Ben? <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think all I would add, I think this was implicit in what Maura said, is that you know, because these companies are indeed companies and not humanitarian missions, they are driven by the profit motive. You know, in some cases, they can defer the profit motive, like in the case of Uber, that loses a lot of money. But at the end of the day, these are capitalist firms. They operate in a capitalist market, and they they need to make a profit. And some of them make extraordinary profits, like Facebook and Google. So, you know, firms can change how they make their profit and they can be regulated so that certain externalities of that profit-making process are contained or mitigated. You know, Maura mentioned BP. I mean, you could think of it as a pollution analogy, you know, and I think that's that's one angle that certain policymakers are pushing that if if we, you know, put a little bit of privacy legislation, for instance, we can kind of constrain um, some of the unfortunate side effects of the Facebook business model. But the reality, I think, is that so long as profit is the animating principle of these digital infrastructures that increasingly intermediate essentially our entire lives, our economic lives, our civic lives, our, our social lives, so long as profit is the animating principle, antisocial and undemocratic outcomes will result. You know, people will not be given the opportunity to participate in these decisions that 
dearly affect their lives because those decisions are made by people like Mark Zuckerberg, who in turn are constrained by the profit motive. So I think the hope and the theory of looking below for the motor of change is that workers and communities can together through collective struggle, not just push back on some of the most predatory practices of these firms, but indeed articulate a different set of values for how these digital infrastructures could be organized and the purposes to which they could be put. And that sounds a bit grand, but I think that's the horizon that we need to look towards, particularly as more and more people become more and more concerned about the effect that these firms have on their lives. There are going to be a lot of ways that are that policymakers and, and industry will try to neutralize this concern by channeling it into fairly mild regulatory reform. And I think it's important that we continue to push for a somewhat more ambitious horizon of what these infrastructures could look like if they were to actually serve the people. Yeah. And if I can just add one, just one last thought to that, I think, you know, there's a moment in the interview with the founder that we did where the founder, I don't know the, don't have the exact words in front of me, but the founder says something to the effect that although they've been quite successful and on any kind of, you know, financial outside person looking in terms have been very successful, they feel like a failure and they feel like they didn't work on problems that were hard enough and the thing that also, and in that particular um, interview, the founder also reflects that engineers are asked to do things they know are bad for users all the time uh, and that they think are kind of dumb or, or don't want to necessarily, but, but do to serve the profit motive and business imperatives of their companies. And I think I just want to say as a parting thought that another big aspect of the logic spirit and a big reason we want to talk to people who work with technology is that I think plenty of people, you know, these technolo- these technologies are not stupid. Like this is a stupid use of incredible technology <laughs> to try to ring. You know, I think it's like we don't do this project and the kind of tech criticism we wanted to do in Logic was not because we we hate technology, but because we love technology. And I often think of that moment in the founder interview where the founder says, you know, wasn't it kind of stupid to be trying to get users for this social app so you could roll it up into this or that thing. I think we also want to tap into a certain kind of optimism that people working closely with technology feel um, about better uses that these tools could be put to instead of trying to, you know, steal that much more information about me to sell to Pampers so I'll buy their diapers instead of the other diapers um, when it's time to buy my kid diapers or whatever it is. So I think that spirit of respect and even love for technology and its possibilities is a core part of logic and I hope comes through in the book in addition to to some of the more critical feelings about the contemporary organization, you know, the actually existing organization of, of techno capital at the present. Wonderful. Um, that's all I want to ask, Ben Moira, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and for, for the brilliant book. Thank you. Thanks for reading it. Yeah, thanks us. so much, Patrick.